Hey guys, just a quick note before we jump into this week's episode of InStride. InStride is brought to you by RideIQ. RideIQ is a mobile app with hundreds of on-demand listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by eventing, jumper, and dressage coaches. In other words, with RideIQ, you can take a lesson from an incredible coach during any ride you'd like. No hauling and no scheduling. Whether you're looking to add structure to your rides or try new exercises or build confidence, RideIQ can help. Membership is only $29.99 per month, and every membership automatically includes a two-week free trial. Try it for yourself today by downloading the RideIQ mobile app on iPhone or Android. Welcome to a special holiday episode of InStride. Today, the tables are turned on Sinead. The interviewer has become the interviewee. And who better to interview Sinead than someone who knows her very, very well, her husband, Tick Maynard. Tick is a sought-after natural horsemanship and eventing trainer and an advanced-level event rider. Tick talked to Sinead about her upbringing, her perspective on the horses she's had, and her aspirations for the future. Sinead and Tick also discuss how they plan to approach riding with their children and more. If you want to hear more from Tick and Sinead, Tick was the inaugural guest on this show, and you can find that conversation on the bottom of this show's feed. For now, we hope you enjoyed this episode and happy holidays. Okay, everyone. Merry Christmas. We're coming to you live, but not live from Copperline Farm and Tick and I and um, the girls are in the background with us here. Just wanted to do something a little different and um, Tick and I needed an excuse not to go outside in the 23 degree weather. So we decided maybe a little podcast in the morning to talk about what are we going to talk about? I'm kind of letting Tick take the wheel on this, which is very scary. Well, I've got a few questions and uh, I thought this would be a nice opportunity to reflect a little bit it's uh today is christmas eve i'm sure they're going to release this in a few days or a few weeks i'm not sure about the editing process that goes into this but it's our first christmas eve with a son that is now old enough to actually recognize it's christmas tomorrow so i think that's exciting and it's also going to be a chance for me to ask you some questions that uh hopefully some people will be interested in and that I'm interested in because these are going to be some questions that I wouldn't normally sort of take the time to really discuss with you on a day-to-day basis, especially now that we've got kids. But I think we'll start just by looking back at some Christmases past, and I'd <laughs> like you to share what Christmas was like for you growing up in terms of your family and also in terms of the the horses. Hmm, good question. So, well, at Christmas, as long as I can remember, we've always been, um, it's always been about horses, really, <laughs> probably to the dismay of my my brother and my dad. But for a long time, we had a, a boarding farm, um, which my dad built, and my mom and I worked, and Christmas, uh, often we'd let my brother sleep in a little bit because he wasn't a very horsey guy, but we would be mucking stalls and turning horses out and doing that whole thing. And, um, my mom wasn't a big cook. So, which is funny cause she cooks a lot now, but, um, we would honestly normally do the horses and then often go, um, out to dinner and out and have Christmas dinner somewhere. Like normally my dad would find like a nice hotel that had like a big buffet and it would be local and we would go <laughs> eat dinner there. And, um, 
and then come back and do the horses again. And were the horses, I'm not sure I even know, were the horses on your property or were they growing up where they on at a boarding barn that you would have to go to? So when I was probably 13, we started the process of building um, a boarding facility. So it was a 16 stall barn and it had a really nice apartment above it. And the plan was to build another house eventually, but live over the barn um, for the first little while. So I think when I was in high school, right when I was moving from middle school to high school, we moved there. And so the horses were on our property as well as 15 or 16 other boarded horses in South Carolina. And then before that, we boarded the horses. And so you were one of those kids that right off the bat pretty much knew you wanted to ride. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then when you were maybe 13, you decided you wanted to do this full time, like for the rest of your life. Was that, was that, when did that happen for you? <laughs> I I don't think it was ever a decision. I don't think there was one day like I woke up and thought, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I think I just always just assumed. I just didn't think about anything else, I guess. I never thought. I mean, maybe when I was like, you know, I like eight, I thought, well, I like horses. I'll be a veterinarian, you know, like every other kid. Or maybe yeah. if there was a little while where I wanted to be a singer. <laughs> yeah. But I always, yeah, I just never really thought about anything else. I actually really, I even remember in high school, um, in one of my classes, and it was like a freshman in high school, we were supposed to research colleges and colleges that we wanted to go to and, you know, figure out all these, this information. And I just remember really struggling, like even getting excited about the idea of researching a college or like going to college. Like it wasn't, I mean, I think I, I did the whole report on the like university of Hawaii because I just wanted to I think you had to have a GPA of like 2.0 and you got to go to the beach all day. So I think I like researched that because it just wasn't anything that I, that held my focus for very long. The yeah. idea of school or anything other than horses. And did, did you apply to any colleges or did your parents push you at all in the direction of college? No. Uh, you know, it's weird to think about it now because, I mean, I know even in kids that I teach along the way, like, and I feel like as, in 10th grade, they're starting to do college visits and applying and things like that. And it just like, and I don't know, (laughs) go to the best school, um, and, uh, in, in, in South Carolina, but, um, I, yeah, I never applied to school. I think I'd always planned on taking a gap year. Like I, when I was 15, so in between my, um, what would have that been my freshman and sophomore year? My parents let me go from South Carolina to be a working student in Virginia for the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think that was when I first realized like that, how, um, how much the, that community and these people were my people. And like, that's where I felt like I really belonged. Like, I, I don't think I ever felt like I belonged at school. Um, I not necessarily at school, but with that that group of, with the group of people, there wasn't really a horse community there and I didn't do any other sports. And so I never felt like I found like a, like a click or a crew of people at school. Like my, my best friends were my horse friends. And then when I realized when I went to be a working student, that there was like a whole, like in Middleburg, Virginia, where the whole place was just like, you know, horse Disney world where you had Olympians everywhere from every country. And I just met people like me that were like young people that just kind of 
found themselves, you know, like speaking of Christmas, I felt like I got on the, you know, the train, uh, the Polar Express, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the Horse Express in the middle of the night and woke up in this like amazing land of horses. And I just was like, this is it. For those of you that don't know, we're in Citra, just north of Ocala, and we've got 20 acres here, and we often have between two and sometimes up to five working students, Mm -hmm. and they're often in the position where they're sort of in a gap year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've got Kat and Lindsay right now, and Kelsey's a little bit older, and in the past, we've had some kids that have been testing out college or gotten more excited about college, like Juliet. Is there something that you consistently tell these kids and these parents about going to college or do you you really feel like you're, because you're in a position, we're both in a position of almost like not just a coach and a boss, but almost like a mentor Mm. to some of these kids. What would your advice be? Is it the same for everybody or do you really think some of these kids have a future without going to college? I think it's so independent. I don't, I don't, um, yeah, I think it's so independent or personal for each, each person. I think you can do it all. I think, I mean, I, I guess I would be very, I would be very confident you can do it however you want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if you want to go to college <laughs> and you have a, a, a lean that way, I think what a great experience. I mean, I, I know we've had this conversation. I think more of my issue with school was that I don't think I was a very good learner. Um, and so that made, I, I just yeah, didn't really know how to, to learn and, um, or how to get my attention focused on something other than horses. And I feel like, so that was a natural, like, it was just like very easy and natural for me to move towards the horses and away from school. I do, I don't regret not going to school, but I think there are, like, I would have enjoyed college. And I think you actually said that to me a lot now that I would have really enjoyed it. And, and in hindsight, going to college for two or four years, I don't think would have detracted, you know, like there was a lot of stuff in my, it's easy. I think it's easy in the moment to think like taking a year off or taking two years off or taking four years off from a career and a question career. It feels like a big deal. Just Mm -hmm. like having a year off to have a kid in the moment Mm -hmm. feels like a big deal. But I think we're very lucky in the horse world that our careers can last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes Mm -hmm. even more than 60 years, you know, if you start riding when you're 13 and you can be able to ride competitively in in some disciplines like dressage until sometimes in their sixties or seventies. Yeah. And I think like even doing these podcasts, like you realize how every like success, it doesn't, it's not a big, for some people school influences a lot. And for some people it doesn't, you know, I've interviewed people that have gone to Olympics and world championships that left school, you know, in middle school and people that, you know, went to university, had real careers and, and then in their late thirties decided to become professional, you know, like it doesn't, I I think it, it, you don't have to do one or the other. Yeah. For school, I do, you know, you, when we first started dating, you, you kind of said that you, you went to a bad school and you were never really interested in college. And, and I've always, when I look at the way you approach horses, I think you approach it just the way that a great university student and later great university professor would, is that you have an inexhaustible supply of curiosity Mm. about horses. um, And you're always trying to get better. And that, the the way you look at it is specific in terms of a, a horse's movement or dressage, but it also starts to expand. And then you start to think about the 
you start to think laterally about the things that affect the things that affect the things. So now, you know, one of the things you're working on now is, is self-improvement because you're realizing you can only help the horses so much, but you got to help yourself in order to help the horses. So you start to look at it from all kinds of different directions. Um, and I mean, I think the place where you're at now, I think you would love college. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people that go to college that don't have that attitude. They just have the money and the parents encourage them to go and they go. But I think the most important thing to bring to any kind of education, whether it's with the horses or whether it's with college, is curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think what you said about learning is you have to learn. You know, some kids are maybe naturally born with that, but I think for 99% of us, we sort of have to learn how to learn or we sort of have to learn how to be curious or have that that learning or that curiosity encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, that one book I read called uh, Work Hard, Be Nice, um, where they go into these inner city schools and they reform them or they, they started their own schools. One of the things that the teachers consciously teach these kids is three things, which is sit at the front of the class, make eye contact with the instructors and nod when they're speaking. I just did you're all nodding, of that. You're, and you're just nodding here as I'm speaking. Was, you can't see us, but Sinead's sitting to my left and she's, she's nodding as I speak. And I was not one of those kids. Um, you know, I often sat at the back um, I wouldn't make eye contact. I don't think I ever nodded once, you know, in high school when a teacher was speaking. Um, but now as somebody that does presentations and that works with a lot of uh, horse students, you <clears throat> definitely notice the kids that are interested. They sit at the front, they nod. And those are the ones that encourage you to do a better job yourself. And also the ones that if they have a question, you're more likely to answer it or spend the extra time after talking to them or recommend them for a working student position or give them a reference to remember their name. Like, and, and it's similar, and that's that's what we want from the horses, too. We want the horses to come up to the front of the paddock and, like, do their equivalent of raise their hand to make eye contact or say, like, what are we going to do together? What are you going to teach me? And that that really comes down to me, not a matter of intelligence at all, but a matter of motivation. Mm -hmm. Which leads me into my next question. Um, Brooks, is, he's now four years old, our son, and... This is probably his first Christmas that he's been able to look forward to. Beyond that, it just was kind of thrust upon him. He didn't really realize it was coming up very much. And with his riding, he has not been interested in riding so far. And I know you've joked, you know, I hope our kids don't ride. Mm -hmm. But my question is, is that joking or or do you think you'll you'll look forward to having him ride or teach him ride? I know for me, it's a great pleasure that I can talk about riding with both my parents and with my wife. But what do you think with Brooks and Violet? I guess it's one of those things that I don't ever want to feel like I'm pressuring something that's not interesting, you know? But then I think you're right. I mean, I guess my answer is I don't totally know, is that I think sometimes um, we don't know what we don't know and kids don't know what they don't know. So getting a general, a baseline of understanding around something, um, so that you can be, um, you know, educated in the environment that you're in and not feel, because it could be actually, if, if one of our children doesn't know anything about horses, which would be like almost impossible given this environment, you would almost feel like an outsider in our world, which yeah. when I think back into my, childhood, I have a lot more empathy for like my brother and for my dad now than I did then, because I think in the environment that they were in and that they created and helped create, I think they actually felt a little bit excluded and a little bit like an outsider, which can create more of that feeling, um, where a general, um, interest and 
um, understanding so that you can participate or be around and know, you know, the language that's being spoken in the room is, is you can kind of move in and out of that gracefully and with ease and it's not intimidating. So I think a certain level of understanding is important. I think right now at four, it's, you know, too young, (laughs) but if we can figure out a way that he can have it be fun and be curious about it, you know, whether we get him a Western saddle or he ends up, you know, getting a, a fun little pony and he can do tricks on it. You know, I think that's probably more fun than, you know, teaching him, on a lunch line, how to do dressage. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I think going back to your, um, you know, having it be curious, like coming from a a place of curious or motivated by curiosity and play, I think that's our job as riders, as parents, as instructors, as, you know, um, mentors for the people that work here is like, how can we make it set it up so that the horses, the kids, the students become curious and become, um, interested even if if we plant it but they think it's their idea you know that's kind of the the art of it um and you know going back to a more base level of that is that in order if you look at it from a horse's point of view and i think most things that we do horses are our medium like that's how we learn is through horses and then we take that outward from there like we do that we laugh about it that's how we learn our parenting but it really is true and i think when we get in you know if we ever happen to get into an argument or a heated situation with with people or family like i often think like try and take myself out like what would i do if a horse was doing this like how would i approach it because i find myself very balanced when i'm dealing with horses i don't get I I come from a pretty, I feel like I come from a a good place when I'm, or a good perspective, but it's because I am kind of grounded in a bit of safety around those things. And if you're safe, uh, then it's easy to be curious. If you don't feel safe, like you can't be creative, you cannot be curious. You're just using all of your functions to survive. And that's what, how it is with horses, you know, some horses just have, you know, it's, it's in their genetics and it's been in their upbringing from when they hit the ground that they've been in really good environments and they're very self-confident and it's easy for them to feel safe in most environments. And then you've got other, other horses, a lot of, you know, off track thoroughbreds, things like that, that have kind of a rough and tough start to life. And in their genetics anyway, they're more prone to be active, you know, flight, more flightier um, animals. And so the main thing with them is trying to get them to feel safe so that you can teach them so that you can't, they can be creative, so they can be curious. So I think that Um, is such an important thing with learning, motivation, teaching, is that the base thing all the time is creating an element of safety so that then all the great stuff comes after that. So that's what we're trying to, to recap, that's what we're going to try to create. I mean, I agree with that for Brooks and Violet is is that they feel (laughs) safe both like in their life in general and their life with horses and that we we try to allow or encourage their curiosity about it. Mm-hmm. And um, I know for me personally, when I was the, you know, six, seven years old, I wasn't really as interested in horses as I see a lot of like six, seven year old kids can be when they're mm-hmm. really interested, you know, it was part of my life and I had a certain level of interest, but it wasn't something I was begging my parents to let me do. But I was in pony club from the time that I was six until I was 21. And it was sort of like, almost a a mandatory part of my life. It was just something that was expected that we would do as part of our family and the community that we lived in, sort of the way that some kids go to church. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like a hard and fast rule. It's just like the expectation, like we're going to go to church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how horses was a little bit for me. And it wasn't until later in my life that I realized 
that I want to do this for a career. And I got a lot more curious and intellectually involved about horses. And um, I think I think that's something we want to do for our kids is at least give them that baseline. At least here's their ability to do, you know, to get on a horse, to walk track Canada, to lead a horse in, lead a horse out. What's a saddle? What's a bridle? Here's some different kinds of bits. And then from there, they can kind of choose. Mm-hmm. I think something that we could both agree on I, I think is that when even if they do horses which i i think i would really like i don't think i'm definitely set on them eventing by any means like i think it'd be really fun if they did any sport dressage mm-hmm. reining cutting show jumping which leads me into my next question if eventing was off the table for you mm. um what would be your second choice for an equestrian sport oh my oh my um well, I think there's a, a lot of elements now that I'm even looking at other things that would pique my interest. Like um, the few experiences I've had with raining. Ooh, good. Really good fun. Yeah, good one. I love the, I like the, the, I do like the tricks part of it. <laughs> like it's just really fun. And I like the, like stages, the sliding stops. Like the sliding the stops, the spins, and, you know, yeah. like the, there's a general technical requirement. But then I love the, like a lot of the storytelling, the music, um, the the theatrics of it to me. The crowd gets into yeah, it. Yeah, the crowd's into it. It's just like super, super fun. And um, yeah, I think raining could be pretty just enjoyable and, and, and uh, yeah, a fun community to be a part of. I'm getting more and more interested um, in the show jumping. I think show jumping, if, you know, again, this would have to be like um, – if there's no, there's no <laughs> restrictions on finances and things like that, because I think when you ride a really good show jumping horse, it just becomes like, that's when it starts to get really, really fun. And I think in eventing, sometimes it's tricky because we're trying to find obviously that horse that can do all three things. And the, now they have to be able to be like a Grand Prix show jumper and Grand Prix dressage. But sometimes you don't always get that, that safety feeling going into the show jumping that allows you to enjoy it. You're just trying to get, get it done. They're trying to make a three rail horse into a one rail yeah, horse. Yeah, exactly. As opposed <laughs> when to like, tired on a Sunday. Yeah, as opposed to yeah. going in on something where it, if you were to jump a, just a, a normal meter 30 class, it would be shocking if you had yeah. a rail, yeah. you know? Um, I think that it's a, in a different lens that could be really fun. Yeah, I, I you know, I think actually it'll be interesting in another 10 years or so like seeing where Liberty's going like with Dan James yeah. and how he's putting yeah. together like a whole like um discipline that's just liberty work with horses because I think that that is going to open a whole new world I think for people um as far as being able to again have these tricks and the theatrics and the art and the technique and the connection and all of that and be able to do it at a very high level from the ground. Yeah, and for those of, for those of you that don't know, Dan James is a friend of ours. He's <laughs> from Kentucky. Uh, he, he's from Australia originally. Now he mm-hmm. lives in Kentucky in Lexington. And he uh, learned in Australia uh, liberty training and trick training. And he, he, he has horses that go in movies and advertisements. And recently, <clears> I think it was last year or the year before, he started the ILA. ILHA, the International Liberty Horse Association, mm-hmm. with the idea of having liberty become its own discipline in a more organized way, just like dressage or show jumping or venting is. And the idea with liberty, I mean, there's different definitions for liberty depending on who you talk to, but um, 
the idea being that you're working with the horse without a bridle, without a bit, um, if you're riding the horse without a saddle. And it's it's much more based on, from the ground, on body language. Mm. Um, and one of the big things you have to have for liberty training is draw, mm-hmm. which means the horse has to want to be with you. You know, in the past, it's just been mainly used for circuses and movies and, and the occasional person that's interested in it. But I think you're absolutely right. I think to see it become a discipline yeah. into itself, I mean, who's to say that it couldn't become, you know, an FEI discipline one day or an Olympic discipline yeah. one day? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing and it, it opens it up to a lot of people that maybe can't ride or don't want to ride or are scared of riding to be able to work with the horses from the ground. Yeah. And I think it, it also embraces a, a whole new audience as well, because it's yeah. like, you know, when it, when you're around the world championships or, um, the Olympic games, when you're, when you watch, you know, the audience that can watch freestyle dressage because of yeah. the music and because yeah. of the incredible dancing, like it captures, you don't have to know anything to be captured by that. And I think Liberty work can be very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So now for my next question, I'm going to zoom out even more. Mm. And, um, you know, growing up, you said that there was nothing really in your mind except horses for a career. Like you never really questioned that. If now, um, you know, you're 41. We don't have to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Years old. Got two kids. Uh, You've already had, um, you know, I think I think as a rider, you always want more, but you have, for all intents and purposes, had a very successful career. You've been to all the Crestrian Games. You've been the alternate for two Olympics. You've been third at Kentucky. You've been second okay, at Burley. Okay, you made up for bringing yeah. up age. So, Let it go. <laughs> so, but my, my question now is, like, if now riding itself was completely off the table, uh-huh. is there another career you could envision for yourself, something you'd be interested in? You know, would it be trying to coach a national team, or is there something you could see yourself doing completely apart from horses? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't see something apart from horses. Not to say that that I couldn't find something, um, but um, I think horses would probably have to be in the picture somewhere. Um, And I do enjoy coaching. I do like that. Um, But I think it would have to also be something I would do would have to be around like maybe combining uh, like understanding horse behavior and competition and human behavior and how those things intertwine and creating a system or um, a, a method around that. Like I have a very strong interest in making a competition a better place for horse and human. And not to say that it's a bad place. I think competition is great and I think amazing things happen. And I think there are people that do it very, very well. Um, And I think there are people that don't even know how and why they're doing it well, other than they have like amazing skill sets and energy control. But it seems like a mystery when it actually doesn't have to be a mystery. Like people can, I do think people can learn feel. I think people can learn how to manage their energy. And I think obviously people can learn their skill set. And I, even if I wasn't riding, um, I think I would really try and focus in on trying to make the, like that part of the understanding better for athlete, um, the horse athlete and the human athlete to give people a competitive edge and also just have it be a much more enjoyable place for horses and humans. Because I think a lot of times, like if if we get bigger on it, we're driven, what drives people to compete is so different for everyone. 
And it turns into a very like, sometimes an unsafe place because you're proving instead of improving or you're trying to do both, but it comes from a real survival place. Like I have to do this in order to be connected, in order to be seen, in order to validate myself. I have to. And when you come with that type of energy, which I don't, haven't met anybody in the competitive world that doesn't have a part of that. And it's when we kind of get a little bit older that we start to get a bigger purpose involved and some more understanding involved and maybe some more self-reflection, realizing that that can get us in a direction, but it, it's not very sustainable to keep that energy up. And it doesn't work with horses. Um, it can, but it's, it's the way that it works. It's the place. And you just get burnt out. Horses get burnt out. People get burnt out. And if we could create sport and competition where pressure is healthy and pressure inspires and pressure makes things great and you have the capacity to hold it. And then it's a, it's, um, it's a better place for athletes as, and then it all in turn becomes a really great place for horses to thrive and get better. And the bar keeps rising, you know, it's like even, and this is a lateral thought, but you know, that talk, that Ted talk that Elizabeth Gilbert did when she was talking about, you know, how all the great artists and poets were killing themselves, they were dying, you know, they were, they were, you know, copious amounts of drugs and alcohol because they felt like they needed to be wounded souls to be good. And that, you know, she thought something was wrong with that, which it is. And I think with anybody in high performance sport or business, it can be easy to go down that road. I have to be this twisted and this intense and this whatever. And yeah, there's parts of people that maybe that really does work for. And there's probably an element of that. There is an element of that. Um, But I don't think that should be the culture. And especially when it comes to animals. And I think if we can get to a place where we can really get education out there that understanding the way that horses are motivated and how they learn and the same with people, and we can promote curiosity and play in these places, I think that would be awesome. So that was like a very long-winded answer, but I think it would have to be something with that. Like I would, I, I want to do that from the horses back. Like I want to work on that. That's my goal for my next 10 years is how can we do this? How can we prove this? How can we show this and showcase this? But if I couldn't do it from the back, I think I could still do it from the ground. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting topic. And, uh, we've both been reading some books lately to do with that. Um, that idea of what drives athletes or what drives successful people. And it can come from probably many places, but the two places we're talking about is one place is this idea of like, you're obsessive. You have like this self-hate, you have this need to improve, to prove yourself to yourself, to prove yourself to other people. You're maybe a perfectionist. You're maybe a little OCD and the person, and you maybe have no backup plan in your life. And the person that actually I think of a little bit with that is the memoir we just read called open. Mm. with Andre Agassi, who went on to become one of the best tennis players in the world in all history. And he was very much in his younger years driven by a place of his dad pushing him. He was a perfectionist. But even by the time he was age of 16, they were letting him fail in school. So he had no backup plan. Uh, He was a perfectionist. He would drive himself. And uh, he says in the opening chapter of his book that he hates tennis. Mm -hmm. And the opposite of that, the complete opposite of that is an athlete that is driven by by the joy of improvement mm-hmm. and by the the joy of play of whatever their sport of discipline is you know mm-hmm. like to see somebody competing in their sport whether it's dressage or going cross country and while they may not have a smile because of concentration there is that joy and focus in their life and they finish that and the and instead of feeling like it's a relief and on to the next thing it's more like that was fun and on to the next thing yeah 
And one of the things that I think those athletes um, that get to the top have is an ability to come into whatever their discipline is with the right amount of adrenaline mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever you want to call that energy. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, when I'm competing at my best, I'm going into that with the right amount of energy. And if it's a sport like when I was doing pentathlon, a sport like shooting, you've got to have very low amounts of adrenaline. You've got to be calm. Otherwise, you know, I'd be holding the, the air pistol in my finger would shake. I'd have too much adrenaline, like wanting to do well too much. Um, whereas for running, if I'm doing a 10K race, I almost can't have too much adrenaline at the beginning. Like the more I have, the better I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And then for some sports, whether it's cross country or dressage, more or less, I think is going to help you. I mean, when I think about myself competing, almost 100% related to how well I do is the amount of adrenaline I have going in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it very difficult to bring that up or down. Like it's almost just chance. It seems like whether I'm going into it with the right amount of adrenaline. So my question for you now is, do you find it easy to bring your adrenaline up when you need it and down when you need it? And is it something that you're working on and something that you could, you feel like you can consciously get better at? Yeah. My answer is yes. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, no, I don't feel like my answer is not yes for, do I feel like I'm good at it, but I feel like I recognize it. And it's been something that's been very much at the forefront of my, training for the last, um, couple of years. And it started with the horses, you know, like I was like, Oh, like this one can manage its adrenaline and self-regulate this one can't. And how can we create little doses of, um, self-regulation and co-regulation in the horses at home? You know, do they look to me when they get worried and we need a little bit of that? And can they actually, how long does it take them to come down on their own? And do I need to help them with that? So, it's definitely been something that I pay attention to a lot with training horses. And then I started doing the same with myself because, um, yeah, I'm exact. I noticed times when my adrenaline was like, for whatever reason, the mood that I was in was really like calm or low. It actually wasn't good, um, for my jumping. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes I would get so jacked that I was like near the top of a 10. And so if anything went wrong, I was just like panic right away. It was too much. Oh, you, then you, what you're doing here with your hand, for those of you that can't see her, she just moved her hand yeah. suddenly. And that's, <laughs> that's what like some horses are like, yeah. like they, they feel your leg and instead of having appropriate responses, like just yeah, like, like jump. And that, and that's happened to me in at home. It's happened to me in schooling. It's happened at big competitions where I, actually my body just takes over and does some weird thing. And, and it's normally because my adrenaline for whatever reason is just at the tipping point of if one thing triggers me, I go into that fight or flight reaction and and my body has this like really not appropriate response. Whereas if my adrenaline is somewhere in the middle of that scale, it it just hyper, it, it gets my focus where it should be, where it reacts in an appropriate way. And it, it gets my focus sharp without it being too much. Um, so I work on it a lot. And the most, mostly the thing that I do is I'm aware of it. Like in one ride, I can tell like where I am. Like if you picture, like I say this a lot of times when I'm teaching, like a Jack in the box, you know, like you can, you can feel it in yourself and you can see it with students where, their adrenaline is about to go up and it's like that Jack is right about to pop up out of Mm -hmm. that box, but they're holding it down. And that is a skill set in itself. Like you've got to have that self-control. Like you've got to be able to like, I am worried and I am frustrated or I am anxious and I don't want to, but I am going to keep myself 
in, in this box, right? And then you have situations where like Jack is asleep at the bottom and if the house was burning down, he wouldn't get out of that box, right? Mm -hmm. But it's somewhere in the middle where it's like ready, where you're just ready um, and you're prepared and you can move around in that space. Um, <clears throat> so that is like, I notice a lot when I'm in that, like just right bumping up against the roof of about to, <laughs> you know, like go ah and like lose all emotional control. And when I... I notice that I just stay there because it's like lifting weights. Like the more you're like, okay, I got this. And I got through something in this state and I were, and I didn't, I didn't lose it. I didn't lose emotional. Like the stronger you get, the more threshold you have for being there. And the more you attune to yourself and you realize I'm actually, okay, I can still operate at this level. I can still get things done. Now, to go out from that where if you're at, if you're just holding it together that is what i mean is like you can't be creative and you can't learn but you can function like you can repeat things that you know so that's where it comes into the training with horses and with myself is that i want to get my skill sets good enough that my i my reactions are what they are i can operate under pressure and i can repeat something i already know now where to me the interesting thing about competition and where we want to get to in competition is that can can I get myself to a place enough that I'm not just feeling that pressure where I'm just at the roof, but I'm low enough that I feel the pressure. I'm alert. I'm array, and I can then instead of just do the thing, I can do the thing with creativity and with art form and with yeah. like watch this. Yeah. Which when you talk to people, like I remember having a conversation with Bettina Hoy who we should get her on the podcast because she's awesome. When she, And she would talk about ringwood cockatoo. And she, I think she was helping me on the flat or something. And she's like, I used to go down the center line and be like, watch this. Yeah. You know? And What a feeling. Like, yeah. I just, when you say that, I can just feel that. I mean, most of the time I'm kind of like, don't watch this. Yeah. <laughs> but like, even, like I, you know, I, yeah. I'm sitting the trot, sitting the trot. Don't know. Everybody take a coffee break. <laughs> yeah. Let me just do this test. Yeah. But like, can you imagine having that feeling in all three phases? And you've yeah. had it jumping. Like I have it, like I've got a very good young horse right now that jumps like a 10. And there are times when I'm jumping him and I'm you know, six out or something. And I just, he's looking at the fence in the way that I know he's just going to jump it so well. And I know I've done everything that needs to be done. And I can just be like, watch this. Cause he's going to jump the, yeah. you know, he's going to just yeah. jump a 10 and it feels really good. And sometimes I would be like that on cross country with Tate, not normally in the start box, but out on course, there would be things that I just knew it was going to be awesome, you know, and yeah. that feeling. And so that's what I mean when you can, you feel like you can regulate yourself and have the skill set and all this stuff that you can kind of start to approach these things with that mentality. Mm -hmm. Now that's not real life. You're not going to be able to do that all the time and you don't have to, but like the, where the minimum is, can I keep the lid on? And just, and is my skill set good enough that I can just do the things that I know how to do? And then the real art of competition is going to be like, can I get somewhere where my focus is, the tune and my skill set is alert and I feel the pressure, but I'm like, let's see what we can do, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't even remember what the original question was. <laughs> well, the question was about raising and lowering the adrenaline. And I mm -hmm. guess you said you've been working on that for a couple of years. And mm -hmm. um, so for anybody listening, do you have any specific tips or people you've talked to or quotes or books that you've read? Like some, some kind of follow up that you'd recommend to people. Uh, uh, yeah. So one of the things that 
like actually I realized is that I, and I, I can't remember what book I read it in, but it really kind of hit me is that you can't talk yourself out of adrenaline. Mm. Cause that's where I was bumping into stuff. So I'd feel it. I'm like, okay, I'm like, like way about to freak out. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I like, okay. I've tried to do that. Yeah. I'm like, how can I talk myself out of this? Okay. You're blah, 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 blah. Like, like this is silly. It's you're just, we're just jumping jumps. I'm not curing cancer. Like how many times have we heard that? And it's like, you can say that all day long, but your body doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like adrenaline is out there. So, um, in that moment, I just <laughs> honestly try and pull myself back and it sounds weird, but like, like self-regulate, like a tune with myself, like, okay, I get it. You're worried or you're nervous or you want this to go well. Like, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, like that's okay. And it's like the more you can sit with yourself in that and be like, it's okay. Um, the sooner that feeling goes away. And one of the things that I like those, if you don't add a bunch of stuff to it, like, even the thought like like where you start visualizing like it all going wrong or you start visualizing it all going right and adding a bunch of context to that emotion. If you don't add a bunch of context context to that emotion or that adrenaline, it should go away in about 90 seconds. But if you start adding like context to it, which is what we often do when we start trying to talk ourselves in or out of that feeling, we start giving ourselves almost too much to work with. Whereas if you can just like sit with it, and even when I'm riding, like if I need to stop and take a walk break and sit with it, or if I just in that moment go, you you feel this, but it's like that where I'm, I don't have to be better than I am in just this moment. Whatever I am right now is good enough. And I have the skill set to operate on autopilot mm -hmm. in whatever I'm doing. It doesn't have to be great. It can be a mm -hmm. six, right? Like mm -hmm. it can be a six. It doesn't have to be amazing. Just keep doing the thing. Um, and realization. And this is where the, you know, maybe if you stop and take a walk break and you need to investigate, do I have the skill set for this? Do I need to go do 10,000 more reps so that mm -hmm. I can automatically do a flying change without having to think I'm going to get a 10 and have this change come off the floor, but I'm just like, I am just going to just do this change or mm -hmm. I'm just going to jump this jump. You know, like, do you have that skill set? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> that ability to to have your adrenaline at the right place is just mm -hmm. so difficult. But I think that's the the main thing is to notice it and and then to reckon to recognize that it doesn't have to be at the right place. That, yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying is it oh, doesn't. Yeah. It can be on that scale. It just yeah. has to like the scale. You know, anything with people and with horses is all on this uh, scale, and you're depending on the level the bubble of what is appropriate right. is bigger and bigger and bigger. Like if you're going five star, the appropriate adrenaline the appropriate skill sets are it's smaller like right. it's just in a smaller range but it's still within a range right. like it still doesn't have to be perfect so yeah. i think it's it's just seeing start to notice where you are on that scale and that's right. like and that it's all okay you know like that's been the biggest thing for me is i think i said to you i mean this happened to me three days ago like i had a was having a jump lesson and i started to get like a little bit like frustrated like i was and i don't even know why and then i realized like later that in that frustration, I was like trying to talk myself out of being frustrated. I was getting super irritated with myself for being frustrated. Like, mm -hmm. you know, then I was comparing like nobody else would get this frustrated over this, just go, you know, and it was all this thing that I know exactly 
I knew out of that situation not to do that, but in mm-hmm. the situation I was doing it. And then I, you know, like later when I came back down, I was like, oh, I just, in that, if that moment happens again, right now, I'm no, I'm just going to tell myself like, it's okay. Like you're on a young horse. You haven't been jumping that much. You're a bit rusty. It's okay. And you're yeah. fine. You know, but it's like learning something when you're not in the moment and like how, like, that's the great thing that we can do it, it, in, in, in like in our resting moment and our learning moments, I was like, what am I going to do when I bump up against that again? As opposed to like, man, I just was awful today and I rode terribly and this was really bad. Like it doesn't matter. Like, it's just like, Oh, okay. Now I'm going to be better next time when that situation, I'm almost looking forward to that coming up so I can see if I can do the right thing. If I can just be like, I'm okay. Like I can still operate. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And depending on our what you said about are we prepared for this moment and our practice level, it's mm-hmm. gonna even before we step into that competition, that's gonna give us an idea of, of where we're gonna be probably yeah. be at. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question now is, with horses, and this can apply to competition, but also things at home or practicing in the barn. What would you consider your strengths and weaknesses with horses? Mm. That's a, could be a very big question. Yeah, it could or... <laughs> be a big question. It could be like, you know, the ability to to see things or do dressage, or it could be like a weakness mm-hmm. is something as specific as, you know, giving a horse shots or vet care or, or discussing things with the farrier or managing the barn. I mean, that's the thing is with the horse, the horse um, life is there's so many aspects to it from managing staff to entering competitions to doing the different phases and eventing to even more specific things like in dressage as a general thing to shoulder in or flying changes as a specific thing Mm. so it can be as broad you know this question can be as broad or as specific as you like Mm. i think probably my strength at this point is i have a lot of resources I have a lot of personal resources from time, experience, and failures. (laughs) And I have a lot of resources in my community. Like, I feel very fortunate that we've had so many different people um, in our lives from very uh, discipline-specific to outside of, you know, our normal grid to a lot of, you know, people on a, a personal, like on a people like sports psychologists, wellness coaches, that type of thing, other athletes. I I just feel like I've got a lot of resources and that helps me operate now in the majority of time with horses on the daily from a place of like curiosity, interest. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I actually love that answer because I think we we were talking about this the other day with, with people that are trying to achieve a high level, like they're going novice now and the goal is to go to Burley. And the first thing that we, that you said you looked at is like, who are the people around them? Who are mm-hmm. the coaches? Who are the vets? Who are the fairs? Who's the show jumping coach? And I think that's a lot of that is, is not, is underrated or not mm-hmm. appreciated is who is your community? You know, you could be the best rider in the world, but if you got the worst farrier, like you're going to show up to have the competitions mm-hmm. and like, you're not going to finish it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or if like you, you pull a, you pull a shoe, are you friends with your farrier and he's able to go out of his way mm-hmm. because he likes you mm-hmm. to come and nail that, shoe back on you know like it's these little things with horses that just can add up so quickly i think that's a great answer Mm -hmm. um and what about uh do you have 
a, a weakness? A weakness, a weakness oh, to you? please. Yeah, I have a few. Where should we start? <laughs> just, just one or two things you think you could be better at. Well, I think, I think keeping that grounding into the competitive side, I think, and I had this conversation actually yesterday with one of our girls because she came to me and said with, and she's been here for a while and said, I, <laughs> she honestly said, she said, I feel like this horse is going to rear at any moment. And I said, Oh my God. <laughs> um, and this is her horse that she's had for a while. And she said to me, she goes, I just feel like we went from, you know, she's had the horse for a year or two and all of it has been, you know, just building relationship with the horse and he's kind of tricky and getting her in the right space and her energy and blah, blah, blah. And then she's done all the work. Everything's been great. And then we flipped in this competitive mode. She started competing. And then it was a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> um, I was teaching her out and I, you know, the horse was looking at him. He was a bit behind the leg and not totally accepting this. And I kind of put the pressure on, let's go a little bit. And, um, and it was within the wheelhouse of both of them and they were fine. Um, but what I missed is that then we kept at that level of pressure and gradually over a couple of weeks, it started to be too much. Like there mm -hmm. was never like a, you know, we need to go back and just reconnect again and then build it from there, you know, go back, you know, retreat and then come back to it again. And I missed it because, you know, like I just, we have a thousand things going on. And then she said, I, I, I don't know what to do right now. And I said, Oh my God, like we need to approach and retreat this pressure type of mm -hmm. thing. Like if you put something on, then you need to take a second and like bring it back down a little bit, make sure you're still friends. Because I kind of, once I started looking at it from that situation, that horse probably thought she was a totally different person, you know? Mm -hmm. And then cats nervous system a little bit was saying the same thing. Like, Oh, I used to be this, like, go with the flow. Like I'm your friend, everything's cool. And now I'm like, now we work, now we compete. And so I think one of my things that I'm really working on is not to be, in like, I'm in one mind over here and then I'm in this other mind over here because that is the, the thing that I'm working on. And that's again, one of the big goals I have is to kind of make sure that you can be competitive with this softness about you and this understanding. And so I think that is one of the things I'm really working on right now, because, you know, when you miss it in your backyard, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. what you're supposed to be doing. So I think I was really pleased that she said that because that, that just like, you know, you've got to, you've got to bump up against that stuff and be okay with that learning. Um, so I think that is what my next, um, thing is, is, is bridging those two, um, minds because I certainly am a product of my environment and my culture and a very competitive culture, a very competitive environment. And so that change, it doesn't come natural or easy. I understand it, but in, you know, in, like we all say in, in theory, it's one thing. In practice, mm -hmm. it's another. Exactly. So, so it's uh, Christmas Eve, and it's cold outside, so we're doing this podcast this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, we've got babysitters for the kids, and the grandparents are in town. My parents drove 10 <laughs> days from Vancouver. They stopped for a day at the Grand Canyon. And, uh, you know, Christmas is a time to celebrate family and to, um, you know, celebrate giving. And we're going to do all that all that. But I also think Christmas is sort of in between Thanksgiving, which is a time to reflect and give thanks and New Year's, which is a time to have some goals for the coming year. And mm -hmm. so that's what we're going to finish with now is we're going to reflect a little bit uh, with the next question. And then we're going to finish with some of the goals that we have for the coming year or multiple years. So what I want you to do is I want you to think back to all the horses you've ridden or worked with in your life. 
Um, and I want you to think of one or two or three horses that it may not be the horse that gave you the best results. It could be, mm. but it may not be the horse that's giving you the best results, but the one or two or three horses that has caused you to learn the most or think the most, or maybe even change the most. Mm. Good question. Why didn't you ask me these questions before this podcast? (laughs) 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 It's like the running joke. I was talking to someone the other day about spending some time together. And I was like, why don't, I'll just get you on the podcast so we can just talk. <laughs> and it's like the same yeah. thing here. I'm like, it's let's like just... we live together, but <laughs> so these are cool questions. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know it. you at all. <laughs> um, okay. Horses. Um, the first one that comes to mind just in um, probably because of proximity and time is Cuddy Sark mm-hmm. um, was a really interesting horse for me because um he was just, yeah, he's just tricky in a, a few different ways, but I also just really liked him from day one. And yeah. so I think. I remember that. We got Cuddy Sark. Let me just interrupt for a sec. We got Cuddy Sark for me from Canada. Yeah. And I was having trouble with something. I think I'd had him, what, a week or two? No, you had him three months. And you snuck him in. I said no. It's true. It's true. We sent him to Vancouver first. My dad wrote him. Yeah. And then we brought him here for me. It doesn't, in my mind, it seems like I only wrote him a couple No, you times. had him like three months. But I was having trouble with something, mm-hmm. something on the flat, I think, in the mm-hmm. field. And I asked you to get on just for a sec, just to help me, just to show me something. And then for those of you that don't know, one of the things that I often get help from Sinead on is flat work and dressage and the horse's movement and, and barn stuff. Um, occasionally, she asks me for help. Usually, <laughs> you know, yesterday she asked me for help with a horse that she was worried about getting bucked off. So I got on the horse and then I got bucked off. <laughs> So I'm a little sore and a little <laughs> sick today. But, but back, to Cuddy Sock, back to Cuddy Sock. I told you. And you were a little cocky. So I had this horse I was excited about. God, and I was having a little trouble with him. And I got Sinead on for a few minutes uh, to help me with something. And I never sat on him again after that moment. No. I had him for like, what, two years yeah. after that? And you brought him up <laughs> to advance. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I just, you know, like sometimes you get on a horse and you just like them. Mm-hmm. And I just, something about him, I just really liked and he was spooky and yeah, had just come, you know, because of he, he was spooky and he, he just took a lot of time and he'd always stop, you know, he'd always stop the first time and jump the second time. And he did that until, you know, until we ended up, um, selling him. I mean, I let him stop in the warm up once and then, and then he jumped, but you kind of had to let him, um, Anyway, I just learned a lot about him and about different ways to um, to be on the same side while having an ultimate goal. And I kind of had to go through a side door with him because he needed – it wasn't the traditional, like, he stops, you hit him. You know, it just was never going to be the thing. Um, he just shut down. If you do that, you would not get down the driveway. You'd be sitting out there for a long time. So um, it was a great period of time because I think we were exploring a lot of different ideas and alter, uh, like in our world, some alternative ways of training and some new concepts that are not new in certain other disciplines. But for us, you know, like letting a horse stop or, you know, it just seemed a little foreign, but we were like, let's just try. And so you help. I was very open in that situation to like you really helping me through a lot of things with him because I just, you know, there wasn't another option. I remember a couple of years after having him, there's another professional rider. And she said to me like, you just did such a good job just sticking with that horse, blah, 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 blah. And I just, in my head laughed because I thought, well, I didn't have an option. Like he was the only horse that I had. And, um, you know, that had the ability to go that level. And I think that is one of the key things um, 
is assessing. He had he had a tremendous amount of physical ability. He still does. I mean, he's going three star now with a, a a younger rider. Tremendous amount of um, physical ability, scope, and gallop, and all that stuff. But he he was definitely um, had a lot of interesting things about the way he saw the world. Um, and yeah, so I, I learned a whole lot there. And one of the biggest things I remember, um, I think he came when he was nine. And then when he was 11, I finally felt like he came out knowing the job. Like I, he was second at his first advance. He, you know, had done a couple of three stars and, but then I had this understanding that to get to the next level, like to get to the five-star level, there was going to be a whole new level of pressure and a whole new, uh, skill set he was going to have to understand that was probably going to take me another two years. And I just felt like this horse had spent so much time getting to a point where now he felt very understanding of the world and he didn't look at it as a place that was, there's still spooks and does all the funny things, but it didn't have a lot of stress behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I think I came in and I said, I think, I think we need to find his next job. I think he's Mm -hmm. ready to show somebody else the ropes to this Mm -hmm. level. And it would be unfair of me to, to try and go five-star because it's what I want to do. You know, he physically could do it, but mentally the idea of putting in another two years with that, like with what the new things he needed to learn, I thought would just could possibly be too much for him. So Mm -hmm. I think that was a big Mm -hmm. learning thing for me. Yeah. We when we when we were talking about when we had Cuddy Stark and we were talking about allowing a horse to stop, uh, it's a very hard thing to to explain what horses we would do that with mm-hmm. or or why. Um, the only other horse that I had a lot of success by allowing him to stop a couple times was Larry, yeah, uh, Vasilia of the horse I got from Zach Brand. The only way I can think to explain it right now, and I remember I let him stop at a jump in an in intermediate, I think at. Stable, uh, not at Stable View. At um, I'm drawing a blank on this right now. Anyway, some big competition somewhere doesn't matter where, and it was a a big log to ditch to log, and it was almost like after he stopped, there was this moment where he'd never been sort of allowed to stop before, or he'd been whipped before, or or whipped after he'd stopped. And I do say there, and I do think, don't anybody get me wrong, that there's a time and a place. Mm-hmm to say, hey, you can't stop. But it depends on the time. Mm-hmm. It depends on the place. It depends on your feel and timing. And more than anything, it depends on the horse and where they are emotionally. And I think for Larry, what happened, and I'll bet you that you could find an interesting metaphor for for people in certain situations, um, where he almost went, oh, I have the choice to stop. Now I don't feel like I need to stop. Right. Now I feel now I feel like now that that is a choice, I'm going to choose to go. Yeah. But when it wasn't a choice and it was always felt forced, mm-hmm. then he never wanted to. I was completely having, I was having this conversation the other day because it's, it's kind of the difference between, um, like, I do think the rider is the leader and the, the difference of how you do things is that like, we want a partner, but we're the leader in that partnership, but we want our horses to say, yeah, I want to go with you like you know what you're doing like you have a strong like energy about you you seem to know what's up you're consistent you're reliable i trust you because horses in they're like us they want to connect they want to partner they're herd animals like they're they're wired for connection so if they have the opportunity and and just like 
people, most people, they want a leader. They want to follow someone. Horses yeah. are the same. They want to follow someone. So if we can be a leader that allows them like a democracy to have the choice of coming with us or not, or doing the thing or not, if we present it in a way like that, where they, it's exactly that situation. Now there are a lot of, um, partnerships that aren't that way they're dominating and mm -hmm. a lot of horses can handle it they they just they just do it but it's how mm -hmm. they do it but if they're given the choice they would leave that partnership but they're yeah. just not given a choice yeah um and that is what is the you know this the like interesting thing that gets us out of bed every day is figuring out like why, why is the horse stopping is it the jump yeah. is it the environment is it the is it sound is it the partnership is it not that it doesn't have a choice? You know, all of those things. It's like, why is it doing the thing? And yeah. if you can figure that out, yeah. then it's it's easier to make your decision on how to yeah how to proceed. You know, with any, I think you're absolutely right. With any problem that you have, whether it's a horse stopping or not getting on a trailer or you know, not taking the bid or not standing still at the mounting block, the first instead of saying how can we fix this, the first question to ask is why is this happening? Yeah. I remember we when we were first dating, we were discussing in Vancouver in my parents' kitchen next to that big yellow table, um, reasons why a horse might stop. And I mm -hmm. think we came up with six or eight different reasons why they might stop. And I think there was only one out of the eight where what we agreed would be the correct answer would be to go to the stick. Right. So the other seven would be like the horse is overfaced or lower the jump or the horse is scared or distracted or we didn't ride positively or there's like something else mm -hmm. to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Cody Sark is a great choice. Uh, did you have another horse, or are you ready for the next question? I think I could go on for hours, so we should probably go to the next <laughs> question. <laughs> okay, this is this is sort of the last uh, question, but it's two parts, um, and it's to do with your goals for the future. So mm. the first goal that I want you to answer is, is a smaller goal that you feel like is definitely achievable in the coming year or two, definitely achievable, barring some unforeseen you know, natural disaster or something like that. Something that you're really working towards that you're fairly confident you're going to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is a goal that you feel is like, you know, dreaming, you know, in the stars that if you told us this dream right now uh, for the next year or two or three, you know, half the listeners are going to be like shaking their heads and being like, oh my God, like <laughs> I, need, Sinead, I need nods and Sinead, eye contact. Sinead is I like crazy. What, what is she doing? <laughs> Telling everybody on this podcast that she's dreaming. Like I want them thinking like, She's got two kids. She's too old. Her husband doesn't have enough money. Heck. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is the two two dreams. You're really setting me up. Here. No, no, no. Because because I believe in you, and I know it's <laughs> going to be hard to come up with that dream that big for these listeners. Mm, so those those are the two dreams I want. The let's two see goals. See what you're doing here. Okay. Um, the small goal. One of the small goals um, is is finding the the balance with making sure that our like the scheduling of the days and the systems are working and functioning between competition training coaching finances we've gotten really big into systems here and i'm super excited about when the season gets going because we have a couple of really nice horses and i i actually am excited about checking to see how these systems are working and finding ones that aren't and like you, reworking you, them. Can you give, I mean, I love that. Um, can you give an example of a one or two systems that we've started incorporating? Yeah. Like even like as simple as the like parking of the trailers when we get yeah. back from the horse shows, like how that system works, who's responsible for taking care of the horse that gets off the trailer, who's responsible mm -hmm. and when for cleaning the trailer, entering the tack room, who's responsible for backing it up. Mm -hmm. um, and those responsibilities 
um, are delegated as well as making it super easy. Like the parking space to back the truck and trailer up is super easy. The mm -hmm. way that we get all the stuff out of the trailer is super mm -hmm. easy. It's not about making life harder. It's about making it more efficient. Yeah. And the, the boots, how you organize the boots. I thought that was, instead of trying to, you know, say people need to work harder, it's trying to make the system easier. Easier, I know. And that's like, the girls like will laugh now because if I see like a set of boots on the ground at the wash rack, you know, I'll just start yelling, the systems aren't working. The yeah. systems aren't working because, you know, like where the boots, how the boots were getting stored and the people pulling boots off horses and just throwing them on the ground in the wash rack, you know, it just wasn't working. So we created some systems around making the wash rack super efficient, where the boots get stored, where they get hung, if they're wet, where they go, if they're getting washed, all that stuff that it starts in the morning and it ends in the night. And it's really easy. So, um, I'm looking forward to the systems that we've implemented and making new ones moving forward. And I think one of the, um, the systems that we're working on, you know, personally is, is our scheduling and our timing. Um, I, I think we're pretty good about making the list for the day about what the schedule is for the day. But I was reading a book that, that, that talked about like scheduling everything like last Monday, which is our human day is our day to do all catch up on all the things. I normally don't schedule that day. I make a list of all the stuff I have to do, you know, whether it's banking or, you know, reaching out to some sponsors or writing a newsletter or, or you know, like whatever those things are, but I actually scheduled it and I started it at 7am and I went all the way to 6pm and what I allocated was, you know, 20 minutes here, 15 minute break there, half an hour here, you know, lunch break here during the lunch break, I can do these two things. And it was incredible how focused I was able to stay mm -hmm. um, because I think a lot of the problems that we have or run into is not, is like the systems failing and not being able to stay focused or on task because we have so much we have to do. So my, yeah, so one of my really the small goals, but I think it's very achievable. And it, in that sense, it's actually kind of a big goal is just, just implementing these systems in the competitive barn. I think we have yeah. our, the right staff in place. I think we have a few more horses we want to get into the barn. Um, but I'm looking forward to like by the end of the season, really having a streamline. Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree. <laughs> and now this is the moment that everybody's been waiting an hour for. Oh, the big, the big, big goal. goal. Mm, big goal. The big goal from, from the, the reaching for this, the stars goal. Yeah. I think, like if I could just with no holds bar, like have something out there. I mean, I still like, I have a lot of Olympic goals. Like if mm -hmm. I tomorrow, and this, it's something I'm actively working on, um, is if I could get a horse for Paris and, and horses on the radar for and um, Paris is 2024, 2024, the Olympics. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and looking towards the next world championships and LA Los Angeles, um, you know, this, like I said earlier in the podcast, like this next 10 years of my life, I want to focus while I, while I am able to do it from the horse's back, um, bring that, you know, bring a level to the level, if you're yeah. saying like a different level, like carve out a different roadmap. And in order, uh, to do that, you have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's, you know, it started a year or two ago. I was in the position, fortunately through some syndicates and owners to, to purchase two horses that I thought were going to be, um, able and ready for 2024. And unfortunately one of them had a pretty significant injury and the other one just proved pretty shortly that he wanted to be a hunter. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he got sold. And then I, you know, I did what people do. I just said, well, it's not in the cards. And then I, you know, kind of woke up one morning and said, why? Like the cards are hard. Like we're, it's hard. It's late. This is, this is a stretch, but, um, you know, there's still a chance and like, why not try with everything you have? So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I want to spend this year and the next little bit focusing and there's a cutoff date. If there's not a horse in the barn by, you know, probably March that Mm -hmm. has the ability to do Paris, that's, that's the marker that's going to be missed. Um, but that I'm, I'm not stopping there. I think that is, you know, when you look at your life and you go, what is, you know, there's, there's something that starts in the beginning and it's an interest and it's, you know, like courses were my interest and then they're like my passion. And then there's all this practice and then you find your purpose. Right. And I, I really feel like my purpose is to make competition a better place for horses and humans, but doing it at the elite level, showing that it can be Mm -hmm. a competitive edge. Um, but that's still in theory, Mm -hmm. you know, like I want to do it. Mm -hmm. So that is, um, that's my big goal. Mm-hmm. And now I go throw up. <laughs> and and um, you know what, Sinead, what you haven't said um, is the the few people out there that are going to help make this happen that we mm. need to, that we're going to find, that mm. that you're you're going to find, that I'm going to find for you, that we're going to find together. And, and somewhere, you know, in the world, somebody's going to come along that's going to help us find this horsepower because, you know, riding is one of those few sports um that no matter how good a rider you are, if you don't have the horse, mm-hmm. you know it, it's not going to happen. And I think you have amazing timing, amazing feel. You work harder than anybody I know, and not just on a on a you know the day here and a day there, but constantly. When we're on vacation, you know you're making notes about horses. You're thinking about the horse in the barn. You're in contact with the staff. Um, it's it's really an all encompassing passion, and you're doing it now with two kids um, as we manage a farm that we own. And as you're also now going on this journey um, to manage your, I'm not sure how to phrase this, manage your own adrenaline and emotions and self-improvement. And also for the horses that we're, that, that we um, both, I think, I hope, are really trying to do the best job we can to make sure that these horses have the leaders that they deserve. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. horses are, are very forgiving creatures. You know, whenever somebody says to me, like, I, I can't believe this, horse kicked this person or there was this accident or something like that they're like don't you think it's it's unusual or rare why did this happen and all i'm thinking usually is that i'm surprised it doesn't happen more often like like i feel like people make so many mistakes with horses and read horses um not in a in a malevolent malevolent way or evil way but in a way that just isn't always as educated as as it could Mm -hmm. be and i'm surprised there aren't more accidents Mm -hmm. with horses and so i think that's that's one of my big goals we're gonna have to do a separate podcast but one of my goals is to support you as much as i can in achieving your goals and i would like to finish this podcast by encouraging everybody to have two goals as well one mm-hmm. small goal that you feel like is achievable that you can reward and reward yourself and check off the list when you get it done and then another big dream that you have out there and you know you make it this christmas the next christmas we'll check in you know and we'll see where everybody's at and and maybe even if you didn't achieve that goal because it was so big but maybe you had it and you got halfway there Mm -hmm. and that halfway is further than you would have gotten if you hadn't had that big goal well it's it's funny well 
first of all, there might be a podcast coming up following some people on their journeys with their big goals, because that is, you know, again, that battle we have back and forth. It's like, why not? Why not put those big goals out there? Like, like you said, the worst thing that can happen is that maybe you take a left somewhere, you know, like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And that was a big flip for me when we started this conversation about, um, you know, the possibility of finding some, some, uh, horsepower for Paris and on is instead of, I just had to switch my mindset instead of wanting one person to say, yeah, let's do this. Let's go. I said, I need 10 rejection letters. I want 10 because I was reading another book and it was just talking about, um, it was actually talking about, you'll find this interesting cartoonist for the New Yorker. I love the New Yorker and the rejection rate. And one of the top cartoonists said, um, it, it was like a, a 90% rejection rate. Wow. And the the interviewer asked another one, said, is that about right? And he actually was doing the calculations about how many um, cartoons get submitted and how many get picked up. And he said, no, that's right. And the interviewer said, oh, good, because I thought that was way too high. And he said, no, it's higher. It's like 98% rejection rate. Oh, my God. And um, the guy that was getting interviewed sent, um, I think he sent... Um, I want to say he sent uh, cartoons in every week for two years and got rejected for two years. Yeah. Um, and it's like in, and I'm like, well, that's a different mind. If you just get okay with that and you see it yeah. all over the place, you see it yeah. in, you know, people that are, yeah. want to be musicians or actors. I, yeah. I just re- actually read an article in the New Yorker about a guy that wanted to be a bonsai master, a bonsai mm-hmm. artist, and he wanted to go to Japan um, an American guy, and um, he wrote the top bonsai master in Japan when he started college because uh, he wanted to go there. And he wrote him, you know, one November after he'd started, and the guy didn't respond. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people that are applying for a working student position or something like that, yeah. the person doesn't respond. You go on okay. to the next thing, you change your plan, whatever. Yeah. He didn't get a response, so he wrote again the next month. Mm. Didn't get a response. He doesn't even know if the guy's getting the letters. Right. He wrote every month for three years before the guy even responded to him. Wow. And like, that's the kind of commitment, you know, that's, that's like 98% yeah. rejection. And, yeah. um, but you know, then there's going to be the 2%. Yeah. And I think it has so much to do as well with like, like belief in what you're doing, what your purpose is. And like, that was a big thing for me when I realized like, and, um, was that actually, I was putting, like, I was like, Oh, like, almost upper limiting yourself. You're like, Oh, if I, if I don't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't, you know, like, you're like, why not? Like, keep, keep on it, keep on it. And it would take more than one person saying not right now. And most of the time the somebody's not right now, or this isn't for me is more to do with them than you, you know, like it's got more to do with, um, you know, their ability to come, to come on board. But, um, you know, like you've got to, you got to have belief. And for me, one of the the things was finding the purpose behind what I wanted to do because I was struggling for a while. And this was probably like five or six years ago, just of that mindset that we hear all the time, like, oh, we're just riding horses. We're just riding horses. We're just riding horses. And I don't think that's fair. I think what we're doing is really a big deal. Like, I think it is our medium for learning. It's our medium for growth. It's how we choose to look at the world. And like, if whatever your medium is, it doesn't matter. It's all about growth and learning and how you, how you show up to life and, you know, like thinking about how you want to show up to life and what you want to do and being, whether you influence one person or hundreds and thousands of people Mm -hmm. or, or just, you know, your family, Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, but like, how do you want to show up? And, um, you know, for me, it's, that was a big, 
like change in my mindset of like, how do I want to show up? How do I want to show up for the horses? What is the purpose? What is my bigger purpose? And I think we share Mm -hmm. a lot of that together. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, and we will do another podcast with you on, on, you know, what your big goals and big dreams are, because so much of what you're doing and what I do complement each other, as far as looking at it through a better space for Mm -hmm. horses, humans, dogs, animals. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I like that challenge to put that out there for people to, to think about in this time is like, just put it out there. And like, how do you want to show up to the world? Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think, I think I want to bring it back and close it up here with the idea of showing up. One of the things that you've taught me a lot in the past few days and made a big deal out of is showing up without a screen. And I think to leave this episode now, um, it's great that people are listening to this as they, as they drive or as they're hacking their horse and to now for the holidays, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah or just family time or whatever you're celebrating, um, to try to spend a little time reading a book or listening to a podcast and get off of social media mm-hmm. um, for a few days over the holidays. Uh, appreciate the cold weather. Hopefully you've got somewhere warm to be. Appreciate that. And, and to just show up, be present and have a good, have a good time. Yeah. Club. High five. <laughs> Thanks you guys for, for joining us. I hope, um, I hope this gets out to you soon. I hope you're warm or staying warm wherever you are and have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Boom. The end. <laughs> 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 <laughs>